1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: The uniformly brown hills north of Beijing were never meant to play host to Olympic and Paralympic skiers and snowboarders, but China really wanted the Winter Games, and so it found a way to coat the peaks with a frosting of white instant snow created by diverting precious water, blowing it as flakes onto the ground. And get this, when an unexpected blizzard actually dumped natural snow onto the mountains, crews had to remove it because they didn't have time to groom the slopes. Still, athletes are praising the conditions, but they're also noticing the effects of warmer temperatures in normally frigid climates around the world. Here at home, Canadians lace up their skates, strap on their skis, and head to the hills without much thought. They just know winter means lots of ice and snow, but it's not that dependable anymore. This week, we revisit an episode asking, what is the future of winter as we know it, and what can still be done to save it? Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch.
3: people. My
1: mom introduced me to the sports. There was like a lake next door our homes, and that's where we played our first ice hockey games. Ice hockey is the number one sport in Finland, so it's really deep inside of our hearts.
2: that's a clip from the documentary Saving Pond Hockey. It tells the story of a group of pond hockey players in Finland who have banded together to help fight climate change. One of those players is Canadian Steve Baines, and we reach Steve in Helsinki. Hello.
3: Hey. How are you doing?
2: I'm well, thank you. Um, for people who haven't played pond hockey like me because I'm from Vancouver, <laughs> can you paint a picture of, of what it feels like?
3: Yeah, well, uh, actually, I'm from uh, Vancouver too, so I didn't get the chance to play real pond hockey until I moved over here. But uh, the feeling is completely different outside. You get the cold, brisk air on your face, you know, you can see your breath, you can hear the beautiful sounds of the skate with the ice, the slaps of the sticks from the other side of the rink, it's completely different. And it's really nice to be connected to nature like that.
2: And how did you get into pond hockey?
3: I moved to Finland, uh, central Finland, about 10 years ago. When I moved to Helsinki, I asked one of my classmates if uh, he knew anybody that I could play hockey with. And he said, yeah, why don't you uh, come join my friend and I? And uh, pretty much every Monday since then, I've been playing pond hockey with these guys here in Helsinki. It's been fantastic.
2: Can you tell me then I, what about the, the sort of culture around pond hockey in Helsinki? What's it like?
3: Yeah, there's a, a huge pond hockey culture here and uh, outdoor skating culture in, in general dozens of skating rinks and and surfaces around the city. Monday earlier this week, for example, you know, there was kids learning how to skate there and parents teaching them. There's teenagers, you know, passing the puck around. And then us, uh, you know, old guys trying to still figure out how to play. <laughs> and uh, yeah, even a few, you know, seniors there as well. So, and of course, both sexes too. So it's uh, it's really, it's a sport for everybody.
2: I, I'm, I wonder, I mean, you've experienced hockey and hockey culture here in Canada and then there in Finland. Um, I'm going to ask you to get a bit reflective here. Why do you think we have such a deep connection to the sport?
3: Actually, I think that Canada and Finland are the only two countries in the world where, where hockey is the most popular sport. I think that's really a, a cultural thing. Uh, it's a huge part of our cultural heritage and, and traditions. You know, a lot of us grew up learning how to skate when we were kids with our parents. And we, you know, developed a lot of memories outside. And it's just in our blood in a way. And it's the same thing over here in Finland. Everybody's hockey crazy.
2: Now, let's talk about climate change. Um, What kind of changes did you notice in Finland as a pond hockey player?
3: Yeah, so I've only been personally playing over here for... For about a decade or so but almost all the guys on our hockey team are Finns, and they've all of them have a whole lifetime of winters to reflect on and they've all said that it's changed very dramatically how so uh winters are getting shorter starting later finishing earlier uh they're getting warmer even when they do come and it seems like there's a lot more unpredictability last year one of the turn-ins that we had near the end of winter but uh still solidly winter and about halfway through the tournament it just started pouring rain by the finals there was about a you know a centimeter or two of water on the ice <laughs> but uh yeah that was a real wow moment where uh guys were playing pond doggy on you know a couple centimeters of water and basically every pass had to be a saucer pass or a saucer shot because not- nothing else was working wow
2: now, you you we talked about you organizing tournaments. Um This is around the group Save Pond Hockey. Why did you want to form this group, and what does it do?
3: Yeah, so we wanted to form Save Pond Hockey because we just felt like we kind of needed to do something. We formed it with a bunch of guys from our hockey team, and we had all realized that the winters were getting shorter and shorter. So we didn't at first know exactly what we wanted to do, but, you know, being the stupid hockey guys we are. We thought, well, hell, let's just try and organize a tournament and uh, make the message all about saving pond hockey and fighting against climate change and uh, donating the the profits to a a good climate campaign or climate project.
2: Now, the tournaments, um, I understand you've um, attracted some um, notable players. Tell me about that.
3: Yeah, luckily there's uh, been a few big names that have, that have come out and, and uh, played in the tournaments and uh, really supported our message. Um, one of them was the president of Finland. Uh, uh, oh,
2: really? The fin- president of yeah. Finland plays hockey?
3: Yeah, he's a pretty damn good hockey player too, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple years ago, uh, there was Slava Fetisov and uh, Yari Kurri and Ville Nieminen and uh, mm-hmm. Yari Letinen. And then also a name familiar with some Vancouverites, Yorko Rutu <laughs> and uh, m- many, many others. I think it speaks really loudly when, you know, these uh, hockey players and uh, personalities are willing to kind of put their name out there and say that this is something that's important and that we should, you know, all be caring about. And it's an issue to the to the game that we all love. It's a real threat.
2: In the documentary, I just want to read a quote from you. It says, uh, you said, to put it in hockey terms, I think the power of one player to accomplish something isn't very great, but a whole team working together can achieve a lot. I'm wondering what you mean by that when it comes to climate change.
3: Yeah, not a bad quote, actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh when it comes to when it comes to climate change it, it pretty much means that we all need to be working together on this it's such a huge issue that uh obviously if we're all just working individually on our own then we're we're not going to get much done but this is such a massive issue um, to not just a hockey obviously that's uh quite small in the big picture but uh you know that this is something that yeah we we all need to be working together on
2: and at the end of the day, um, what do you hope all of this achieves?
3: Well, we hope to save, save the world. That's what we're all about. But uh, realistically, we're, we're hoping to unite the hockey community all around the world against outdoor hockey's greatest threat, which is climate change.
2: God, saving the world through hockey has got to be a message that appeals to Canadians, Steve. <laughs> Thank you very no much problem. for your time.
3: Well, thanks a lot for having me.
2: Paper or plastic?
1: Oh, I forgot my own bags.
3: Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know.
0: Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the
2: planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So the winter activities we love are under threat from climate change, but thinner lake ice also poses a threat to us with research showing activities we know and love can be unsafe and sometimes fatal. Sapna Sharma is an associate professor at York University in Toronto. She's been studying the impacts of climate change on lakes around the world. Sapna Sharma, hello. Hello. Now, your research has shown that more people are actually dying by drowning in the winter. How big of a problem is this becoming in Canada?
0: Uh, In Canada, it's actually a terrible problem. So um, we looked at 10 northern countries, and we found that Canada had the highest numbers of winter drownings. And actually, northern Canada had the highest number of fatal winter drownings through ice per capita of any region that we studied in the world.
2: What kinds of numbers are we talking about?
0: Uh, In Canada, uh, several hundred people each year and uh, what we're talking about here are those that have drowning as their primary cause of death. So we don't include uh, the people who had fatal accidents and may have died uh, as hypothermia defined as their primary cause of death, cardiac arrest, or survive the fall. So uh, our numbers are definitely much lower than what we would expect are the real fatalities.
2: Right, and, and and I gather this is people who are either, what, walking out onto the ice or being on a skidoo? How does it happen typically?
0: Yeah, so um, in Minnesota, we actually had very detailed accounts of how people died. And 50% of the drowners, approximately, were just playing on the ice. And the majority of those were kids under nine. Oh my. Which is just awful. And, uh, and then another large percentage of drowners were those on snowmobiles and light vehicles. And those individuals, the ones that had the highest rates of fatalities were between the ages of 15 to 29. So we found that it was predominantly younger people that were are more likely to drown. Yeah,
2: that speaks to the risk that people are taking as the climate changes. And I want to come back to some, some possible adaptations uh, in a little bit. But first I just wanted to ask you, what parts of Canada are most greatly affected by changes in the lake ice?
0: Northern Canada is definitely warming faster. So I studied lake ice and how, you know, it's been behaving around the Northern Hemisphere. And we do know that Northern countries have much higher rates of warming. Uh, So we're finding that ice on is later, ice off is earlier, and ice is thinner than it once was. And particularly in the last 25 years, the rates of warming are accelerating at very fast rates.
2: And just to be clear, when you say ice on ice, I saw if you're talking about the dates at which the the lake completely freezes over and the the date at which it melts. Exactly. What about the Great Lakes?
0: So the Great Lakes are interesting. Um, We have data going back to the 1850s for some bays in Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, And what we have found is that they're amongst the fastest warming lakes in the world. For example, Lake Superior has lost over two months of ice cover since 1857. Wow. We're also finding that both of these systems are experiencing more ice-free years. So historically they froze every winter. But for example, Lake Superior uh, has not been freezing every winter since about the 2000s. And that gives us a glimpse of what might be yet to come in the future with future uh, increases in temperature.
2: Is is there any sense of why they would be particularly affected? I I mean, I I think of the fact that they're, they're certainly surrounded by industry.
0: It's actually the depth of the lake that has the largest influence. So when you have a very deep lake, it takes longer for it to cool in the fall. And so you have later and later ice on days. And if you have strong wind events, that you know, moves the, the date that the ice forms to even later. It also, by the time spring arrives, uh, the temperatures haven't cooled as much under the ice. And so they tend to warm up. They're ready to break up earlier as well.
2: Let, let's talk about the health of those lakes. What role does ice play in the health of the lakes?
0: Ice sort of acts as a reset button on a on a lake and what we have found is that when there is no ice cover or if ice thaws earlier in the spring we find that we have warmer water temperatures in the summer and those can be particularly um, not dangerous but uh, harmful to and increase the likelihood of the proliferation of algal blooms including toxic algal blooms. So the lack of ice can have wide ranging effects through the summer months uh, ecologically. The other reason, so it affects our water quality for one, it also affects our water quantity. So when we have ice cover on lakes, it minimizes the evaporation rates in the winter And when you don't have ice, you have faster evaporation rates and that decreases the amount of water as well. So ice is really important to maintain water quality, but also water quantity of lakes.
2: And does that in turn affect things like drinking water or or beach usage?
0: Exactly. It totally affects it because, you know, having less water, fresh water available to the community could have longstanding impacts uh, going into the future. But the effects of water quality can be quite pronounced for beach goers, if, uh, and also the fish communities. So it affects recreational use, it affects our ability to drink clean water, and it affects the habitat for the organisms that live under the water as well.
2: Now, we, we just heard from a, uh, a gentleman who plays pond hockey uh, and loves it about what he feels is at risk with climate change. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk to me what, about what else is at stake around the world.
0: One of my favorite lakes to study actually is Lake Suwa in Japan. And its ice record goes back to 1443. Because Shinto priests, 15 generations of the same family of Shinto priests have recorded the date that the lake has frozen since 1443. And, you know, in the first 250 years, the lake did not freeze three times. This decade and since nineteen ninety, the lake only freezes two out of every ten years, and we just published a study to suggest that within this decade we may see Lake Sua freezing for the last time. So that has a huge cultural implication as well for the Shinto tradition who uh, celebrates the event of ice formation every winter.
2: There are Mm -hmm. some new technologies emerging um, for people to be able to know in real time what the thickness of the ice is. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so there's a smart ice technology being developed out of Memorial University in Newfoundland. That would be fantastic to know what the ice thickness is, especially for Northern Indigenous communities who are at highest risk and also spend more time on the ice for hunting, for ice fishing, for travel. You also bring up a very important point of adaptation. So throughout Northern countries, we need to begin as individuals to incorporate adaptation to these warming winters into our decision-making strategies. So we no longer can go out on the ice in the same way that we did in the past. You can't go at the same time. You also need to be more cognizant of thinner ice, maybe slushy ice or holes in the ice. In Canada, especially because winter is such an important part of our cultural identity. It's important for recreation. Uh, It's important to now consider the ice quality before you decide to step onto the ice. And if it doesn't look safe and you've kept track of the weather report and noticed that there's been some days where temperature exceeded zero degrees Celsius or there was some rain, the ice is not going to be as strong and have the same weight-bearing capacity as it would if it was just cold air temperatures. Uh, so just be aware of ice quality, be aware of the weather two weeks to a month before you go on to the ice, and that could help, um, help you enjoy ice and winter activities safely.
2: Lots to think about here. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Okay, that's the ice. But what about the snow? It's been causing a lot of chatter this winter around the Olympics and Paralympics. But for years, people like Teresa Korobanek have noticed a slow change in the season. She owns Stussy Sports in Vernon, B.C. We've been here since 1992. And what I've noticed is winter is coming a little bit later every year. When we first moved here, We were skiing on good snow in Thanksgiving. Maybe five years ago, we were skiing on good snow in early November. Now it's raining up the hill. We don't have the snowpack that we usually have. Daniel Scott's research tries to predict in more detail what climate change will mean for Canada's slopes and the businesses they support. He's a professor at the University of Waterloo. Daniel Scott, hello.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: We just heard from that business owner, what does climate change mean for the ski industry?
1: Yeah, those are really good observations from from the previous uh, commentator. and, And we're seeing that in different parts of Canada, from the West to Quebec and, and here in Ontario, sometimes here in Ontario, they're not able to get open for Christmas, which is you know, a huge part of their their revenues for the ski industry. And we've got really good data across the United States as well that, that shows the last 10 years, ski seasons on average have gotten shorter, even with the massive investment we've made in snowmaking. So from the 1980s to the 90s and to into the 2000s, ski seasons were actually getting longer Because of that snowmaking, now it's warm enough, particularly in the late fall, early winter, that even with that snowmaking, they can't get open for that early season that your your interviewer just talked about.
2: Right. I mean, I grew up um, at the base of a ski mountain and I learned to ski by just taking a short trip. And um, I'm wondering what trends are you seeing in, in how ski hills are looking to the future?
1: Yeah, they all have that question, as well as, um, you know, I've talked to some, I've had institutional investors and pension funds and sometimes real estate developers asking me the same question, not just in Canada, but in other parts of the world, other ski markets, you know, where should they be investing? Um, and, And that's an important question. All of the ski areas want to look at how can we retain the customers that we have, what will happen to the market? And every region that we've looked at, um, there's really two important futures. One, with if we have a low emission future that we all hope for under the Paris Climate Agreement, um, regional markets like Ontario would do okay um, with the snowmaking that they've got. It wouldn't be that much different than what they're facing today. Um, some of the smaller places might still struggle, but um, some of the big ones would do okay. And, and they might even pick up market share um, as some smaller places um, can't make a go of it. So there's there's risks and opportunities in every regional market that we've looked at. um, But when we end up in a high emission future, um, which that's the trajectory we're on now, and we hope to change that, it's a really different future. Then, you know, the Ontario market would really struggle across the board. Um, Quebec would be a little bit better um, out west with the higher elevations, particularly interior BC. In Alberta with the colder temperatures, um, they would do okay as well. And they'd have a competitive advantage over the California market that would really struggle under some of the climate futures that we're seeing.
2: On the program in the past, we, we've talked about the, the um, jobs that are on the line with battles to fight climate change. And we often think about things like resource industries and oil and gas, but but here yeah. too, climate change would have an effect on jobs, right?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that, you know, here in Canada, United States, and and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change at the UN level has really recognized that we haven't done enough research on the service sector. Um, What does climate change mean for tourism at large, um, insurance, and some other areas? So we've typically looked, as you said, at forestry, fisheries, ag, etc. And as a one example, when when Blue Mountain couldn't get open for Christmas, I think about eight years ago, maybe a little bit long ago, they had to lay off 1,200 people. Now that was seasonal, um, but that's a lot of people, right? For particularly in smaller towns, so that's an important dimension to look at. And every regional market, like I said, that we've looked at, there's some areas that will probably struggle or may go out of business. And those communities will have to adjust to to those potential job losses or shift them into a different part of tourism. And at the same time, we've always identified um, destinations or ski resorts that would be climate advantaged and and they would be able to pick up some of that lost um, market share from other players. And so they'll have to adapt for different reasons.
2: Well, let's talk about the industry itself and what it can do um, about helping to cut emissions to start meeting the targets so you get to that low emissions future. What role do you think the industry can play?
1: Yeah, they certainly have already. Um, there's been really progressive uh, ski companies, um, Aspen in the United States being one who has um, not just done their sort of house in order, what, what they can do to reduce their emissions. That's a good start. And and many ski resorts um, have been doing that. Um, but Aspen's gone one step further. They they know they can't solve climate change on their own. The ski industry certainly can't. Um, you know, We have to green the grid. We have to, lots of things we have to do on transportation and other things. So, They've been strong advocates at the state level. Um, They've gone to Washington and advocated for the larger type of change that needs to happen at the systemic level within our electricity grid and transportation sectors and other sorts of things. So they've been out there.
2: On the opposite side, you've already, you also looked at denial in the industry. I'm wondering how prevalent that is.
1: You know, I certainly used to run into it um, early 2000s, a a lot more than I have now. I think now they they know something's going on here. And and so they need to work to make things more climate resilient, certainly at their location, um, but also to be a better advocate for change. Um, But there are still some companies that I think sort of hedge their bets in the United States um, where they, they talk about greening their operations and reducing their emissions. But then, you know, at a state level, they're contributing to the Republican or the Trump Party, um, who are openly, you know, climate deniers, so they're kind of playing a little bit of both sides, unfortunately.
2: Beyond the industry, that there are the larger events that we all love: World Cup, Olympics, the X Games. Is that going to come to an end?
1: It won't come to an end, um, but we've looked at only one of those in, in, in some detail. So we looked at the the Winter Olympic Games, and we've looked at The 21 past host destinations so vancouver and calgary in a canadian context but around the world and we looked at um, would they be climate reliable to host the outdoor portion of the games in the future so the indoor stuff will take care of itself the hockey the figure skating etc but skiing you you know and all of the freestyle and all the downhill events have to be outside and when we looked at um, particularly under a higher emission scenario you know, well past sort of mid century into late century, that sort of 21 22 hosts would shrink down to about eight. So we'd be left with, you know, only about a third of, of traditional or, or past hosts that could continue to host the games um, with the type of climate that they
2: need. Would Vancouver and Calgary qualify or would they be gone?
1: <sighs> Calgary's good. So that's good news for Canada. Vancouver is sort of on the bubble. It's it partly, a so Whistler and an interior, it depends on where they moved the downhill portion. So obviously, you know, North Van, we saw the trouble that they had in the Vancouver games um, with a, a wacky worm spell, having the helicopter snow in, put it on top of hay bales um, to try to get the, you know, the jumps and other the moguls set. So, you know, they had troubles in, you know, 10 years ago, um, so that's not the place that you'd put it. Um, but if your partner location, so Vancouver hosted the in- in- inside games, parts of the games, um, but somewhere in the interior where you had that cold, reliable, high elevation, um, they still could if they changed that up.
2: that well, it's been really interesting, Daniel. Scott, thank you. Thanks for your time. It's, it's a great topic. I hope to talk to you again about it. Well, I, for one, am heading out this weekend onto the mountains with my snowshoes, so I'm hoping against hope there'll be enough snow for me to tromp around in. That is it for us this week. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.